of modern Christendom, there is the assumption that in order to be a Christian, you have to sort of cut the top of your head off, and way too much of the world assumes that Christianity is built for dummies. I insist, I contend, that Christianity is the wisest, smartest, most intellectual proposition in the history of humankind. I am basing that on the fact that for the last 2,000 years, terrifically intelligent and brilliant men have spent their whole lives pouring through the word of God. And to a person, they admit that they cannot achieve mastery of it. They are engaged by it their whole life. They're constantly digging deeper into it. But nobody has ever reached the point where they say, all right, got it. Because Christianity is an ever-growing, ever-increasing, not only way of life, but understanding of God. If God could be fully comprehended by a mortal human being, then he can't really be God. If you think you've got your God fully figured out, then you don't have the God of the Bible. He is far too deep, far too high, far too smart, far too magnificent, far too sovereign for our little human brains to truly, genuinely comprehend. One of the things that I've been very impressed by as we've been looking at these conversations and parables in this section of Matthew that we're in, we're in Matthew 22, by the way, if you want to turn there. One of the things that has impressed me over and over again is how easily Jesus responds to the intellectuals of his day. And the way that he responds 
to the religious leaders and intellectuals. He's dealing with groups of Pharisees and groups of Sadducees and groups of lawyers. These are not lawyers like George, which George is happy about. Otherwise, the verse, woe to the lawyers, would be a problem for you. <laughs> but, but these are those who are the men who spend all their time in understanding the law of God, the Pentateuch, the writing of Moses who would pick at every little detail of the law. These are the lawyers. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders who say that there is no resurrection, that there are no angels, deny a lot of the spiritual elements. And Jesus deals with all three of these groups who are in many ways the cynics of their day. They are the critics of nascent early Christianity. They are certainly the critics of Christ himself. And notice what he does time and time again. Not only is he across the board smarter than them, but he keeps taking them back to the word of God and saying, but the word says this. It's the same way that he responded to Satan. Every time that Satan tempted him in the wilderness, Jesus said, it is written, it is written. Jesus kept going back to the word. And you'll notice that he did not give an apology for the word. He did not feel that he needed to over-defend the word of God. He was so convinced that the word of God was true, he simply used it as his response. Here's the word of God. That's what it says. That's what it means. That's my response to you. And he was able to tie the critics up in their own logic. He could see right through the faultiness of their arguments, and then point out the errors in their thinking. And he had no problem with telling them, you think you're very smart, you think you're very wise, you think you've got it all worked out, but you don't understand. You don't understand the word, he has told them. You don't understand the scripture, and you don't understand the power of God. And as a consequence, you're wrong. You're in error. Here's what the word says. And I think that's the way that we as Christians need to be because there is, and it's not even something I have to defend saying anymore, there is just a lot of really foolish so-called Christianity out there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of silly Christianity out there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of showbiz Christianity out there. There's a lot of so-called evangelical Christianity that is designed to grow crowds, but it then is... Uh, promoting a philosophy of theology. Oh, it's not even a theology, it's a uology. Because they say it's all about you. It's really about you. What can we do for you? What can God do for you? How can we make you more fun and more happy? And how can we make your life better? It's about you. No, it's not. Christianity is about the fact that God deserves to be worshipped. And he deserves to be worshipped in all circumstances. When it's good, when things are going well, thank him and worship him. When it's going tough and you're going through trials and problems, worship him. People, uh, I just had this conversation. People sometimes base their thoughts about Christianity on their feelings. And they'll say, you know, I, I want to be close to God, but I don't, I don't feel it. Your feelings will lie to you. Here, I'll prove it to you. Anyone who's ever sat through a movie, an emotional movie, 
knows when they buy the ticket and sit down in the chair, they know they're watching a movie. They know it's light flickering on a screen. They know it's not real life. But when the music swells and Old Yeller dies, we get real weepy. Our emotions take off on us. And we know it's a lie. We know that two hours from now, Old Yeller's going to die again. <laughs> we, we know that. Stay for a second showing. It's all going to happen again. And yet, we'll get so wrapped up in it because our emotions will carry us away. As a consequence, the Bible never appeals to your emotions. Because your emotions must be kept in line by your knowledge. You have to know God. You have to build your relationship with God based on what you know of God, which is why the books of the Bible are constantly telling us about God, because left to ourselves, we could not know anything about God. It took God telling us about himself. It took God sending his son to the planet who could tell us first person what God was like. And we need to pay attention to that because we read things like the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the reverence of God. That's the very beginning of what it is to know anything. Until you understand the necessity of revering and worshiping and raising up God, honoring him, recognizing the centrality of Christ in your life. Until you get to some of those basic principles, you still just don't know anything. And yet there are people walking around on the planet who think they are remarkably smart because they really think so very much of themselves and they like the idea that cynicism and criticism is somehow an intellectual exercise. And so they come after Christianity very much the way they do in the Bible. They come after Christianity and they criticize it. These men are criticizing Jesus right to his face and thinking that they can catch him in some religious fault. And every single time, he's smarter than them. I contend that Christianity needs to be smart. Mm -hmm. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be able to stand on the word, fearlessly understanding that it is the word of God, and therefore is a proper answer to everyone, believer or not. When the unbelieving world criticizes what we believe, when they think that they can stomp it down, or as Paul said, that they can hold that righteousness down, suppress the righteousness of God. No matter what words you use, no matter how creative you might be, no matter what you think you might know, you're just another sinful human being arguing with another sinful human being. The only proper answer is the word of God. Go back to what the word says. But the word says, respond to people with the word. Why? Because that's what Jesus does over and over and over again. Have you noticed it? Have you seen how often this has happened? I keep trying to point it out. I think if Jesus himself felt that the word of God was sufficient to respond to every critic, then why do we think that we have to implement our own cleverness or our own designs or our own philosophies or, or our own, you know, well, let me give you an either or and what's more likely and what's more, that does nothing for anybody because, again, that's just another 
depraved sinful human arguing with another depraved sinful human the only thing that helps anybody ever is the word of God and if you want to help the critic if you want to help the cynic if you want to help the unbeliever take them to the word don't try to convince them with human logic do you understand me and the model time and time again is Jesus who keeps saying here's your problem your problem is you don't know the word you don't understand the word. And so as a consequence, you don't understand the power of God. You have to know the word to know the power of God. You have to know the word in order to know what God is like, to learn the personality of God, to learn the expectations of God, to understand what God is like and what he expects from you. Then you'll be able to worship God aright because you'll realize that your worship is not based in your feelings. The worship is based on who it is you're worshiping. And because he deserves your worship all the time under all circumstances, you will give him the sacrifice of your life, of yourself, of your praise. What did we read Wednesday night? That fruit of your lips, the praise that you will give to God. Why? Because he deserves it because of who he is, not because you feel like it. You understand that? Does this make sense? Yes, sir. Am I by myself up here? No, sir. Okay. Matthew 22, turn there. As we left off last week, Jesus had just answered the Sadducees because the Sadducees had attempted to tie Jesus up. And in verse 29, he said, you're mistaken because you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. That's where you made your mistake. You brought a apparent conundrum to me. It's not a conundrum at all because you don't understand the scripture. If you understood the scripture, then you wouldn't have the problem that you're describing to me. You're mistaken. You're wrong. You don't understand the scripture or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And then he talks about the resurrection of the dead. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? Now, where did God ever talk to these particular Sadducees and say this to them? Through the word in the scripture. And notice where Jesus placed the scripture. Notice the very high platform he put the scripture on. He said that was God talking to you. God spoke to you and told you this already. He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus adds, he's not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. Now, he quoted Exodus 3, 6. Moses writing hundreds of years before these particular Sadducees were on the planet. And yet Jesus said to them, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God? It's right in the scripture. When you sit down and you read the scripture, that's God talking to you. Now, I guarantee you, if an angel walked through the door right now and said, people, listen up, you would all as a group say, Jim, don't care what you got. Don't care. Angel here. Going to listen to him now. Guaranteed, absolutely. 
Because you would expect that if an angel was here, he's going to tell you something from God. Right there, God has already spoken to you. It's already here. It's already in his word. It's already in the Bible. He is already speaking to you. How can you ignore that? How can you not recognize the value of the fact that you're allowed to have a Bible in your hand and you're allowed to read it? Some of us have Bibles on our phones and our iPads and on our computers. We have ink and paper Bibles and we have several different translations. We have all these Bibles laying around. In most hotels in America, when you check in, there's a Bible in the drawer, thanks to the Gideons. There are Bibles everywhere, but how often in a given day do you stop and say, I need to hear from God. I need to see what God thinks. I need to saturate myself with the Word of God. I need to become knowledgeable of the Word of God so that when I'm out in the world and the critics and the unbelievers and the God-haters talk to me, I can respond to them in a God-like way. I can respond and say, yeah, but the Scripture says. And then stand there on it. Just stand on the Scripture and say, that's what the Bible says. And they'll go, oh, the Bible, that old thing? Oh, the Bible, and you say, that's what God said right there. And don't be shaken from it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't back off it, and don't feel like you have to apologize to it. And don't feel like you have to implement human logic to defend it. It's the very word of God. It's sufficient to do what God sends it to do. And if he deigns to use you as a conduit to carry his word to somebody else, stay out of the way and just do your job. Just carry the word of God. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. So, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, I'm the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. That, to Jesus, is proof of the resurrection. When the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching, and that's where we stopped last week. Starting in verse 34, then the Pharisees heard, because they're part of this large gathering that Jesus is talking to and that Jesus is in among. And when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. Notice this. He has just shut up the Sadducees. They came to him thinking they had him. Here's a tough one, Jesus. Not only does he outsmart them, not only does he take them to the word of God, because the word of God is the correct answer, but then once he has completely shut them up and everybody's marveling at it, the Pharisees get together and go, well, he shut them down. Maybe we could come up with something. Not likely, but let's see what we can do. So the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence and they gathered themselves together. And one of them, a lawyer named George, Asked him a question. So sorry. Asked him a question. Look at the next words. Testing him. <coughs> Trying him. This is not a sincere question. This is not somebody coming to Jesus and saying, I have a real theological question. I have a real need. I have something I need to inquire of of you. I want to pray to you. No, they're testing him. They're trying him. They're really trying to bind him up here. Because they're trying to show his followers that he is not keeping the law of Moses. That he's somehow running contrary to the word of God. They're trying to undermine him as a prophet and certainly as the Messiah. 
One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, inasmuch as he used the word commandment, the implication there is, which of the ten? You know, we've got ten to work with. Which one is the great one of the ten? Because after all, remember, the Ten Commandments are the covenant that God made with Israel. The Ten Commandments are referred to as the words of the covenant back in Exodus. They're written on tablets of stone that are referred to as the tables of the covenant. And they're put into a golden box called the Ark of the Covenant. Covenant, Kind of a clue. This is a covenant that God has formed between himself and Israel. And it is a conditional covenant. They have to keep the law in order for the relationship with God to continue. If they don't keep the law, God is going to punish them and drive them out of their land. And so they come to him knowing that they themselves are guilty. Because look at the history of Israel. The very first commandment says, you'll have no other gods before me. In our Wednesday night study, what have we seen over and over again with Israel? Chasing other gods, constantly. What's the second commandment? Do you remember? Don't make graven images, no idols. What did we see repeatedly in the Old Testament? Constantly making idols and groves and golden calves. And third commandment, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Don't use it for your own purposes. And they're doing this constantly. So they want to know, you know, okay, so even if we've broken those, what if the important one is the fourth one, which is keep the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath, after all, is the sign, the mark of the covenant. That's like the insignia of the covenant between God and Israel. Keep the Sabbath. In fact, the reason that he drove the northern tribes out of Canaan into the Assyrian captivity, God says specifically, is so that the land can keep its Sabbaths. Because every seven years, they were supposed to let the land lay fallow so that even the land of Israel could rest. And they weren't doing that. They didn't trust God enough that he would provide enough on the sixth year to keep them alive through the seventh year. And so they would go out and farm their land on the seventh year. There were all these ways that they had broken the Sabbath over and over again. In fact, they were so keen on breaking the Sabbath that the rabbis had a whole bunch of Sabbath rules that you don't find anywhere in the Bible that would help them to break the Sabbath. Like knowing that you weren't supposed to work that day, they determined exactly what constituted work and what didn't. They determined that you could walk a certain distance from your house, but you couldn't walk any further than that. But if you took some of your belongings with you, you could walk that distance from your house, drop one of your belongings, and then you were technically still that close to home. So you could wander further and drop something. I mean, they were so meticulous about every little detail, every little thing, but in fact, they were constantly breaking the Sabbath, which is why God drove them out. How about uh, honor your father and mother? Jesus has already talked to the Pharisees about the Corbin rule. Corbin rule was when you give your money, your stuff to the temple, and he said you're using the Corbin rule in order to say to your parents, who you're supposed to be honoring, you would say, I I would help you out. I would use my money to help you, but oh, that money's Corbin. It's already promised to God. So you use God and religion as an excuse to not take care of your parents. He's already accused the Pharisees of that. Thou shalt not kill. Well, he's already accused them of killing all the prophets. And they're going to kill him. Mm. 
thou shalt not commit adultery. I kind of sense that all the men who were so excited about catching a woman in the very act of adultery, and they were just so adamant about stoning her. Do you remember when Jesus said, whichever one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then it says, starting at the oldest, because they would have the oldest conscience, to the youngest, they all just dropped their stones, because they all knew they were guilty. So what's the Eighth Commandment? Don't steal. Okay, so we look through the Old Testament. And how much of this sort of thievery and stealing did we see? Lots of it. He was constantly having to adjudicate between those that were moving stones in order to take somebody else's land or to steal their vineyard. Or, or what's the story of Ahab and Naboth? And it's all about stealing a vineyard and killing a man for it. Or David taking another man's wife. There's adultery and stealing. I mean, just the Old Testament is rife with the breaking of these Ten Commandments. Okay, so what's the Ninth Commandment? Now, lying. lying. Yeah. And it's not just lying, it's don't bear false witness. Now, the false witness was the result of the fact that the law said for anything to be brought before court, there had to be at least two eyewitnesses. But if I wanted to charge Conrad with something and take him in front of the Sanhedrin and have him judged, I had to have a second witness. And if I couldn't find an eyewitness, I might go to Jamie, give Jamie a couple of bucks and say, say that you saw it too. In that instance, Jamie is the false witness. Do you remember what happens at the trial of Jesus? They bring in false witnesses. And the leaders in Jerusalem tell them, when you get there, say this. Say that you heard him blaspheme God. False witness, they couldn't be more guilty of false witness than this. And the 10th commandment, of course, is don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's ox or his ass or his manservant or his maidservant or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Don't covet that. Is there a human being on the planet that is never coveted? That's the one that when Paul writes about it says, I didn't know that I was coveting until the law came along and said, don't covet. And then I realized how guilty I was of constantly coveting. Okay, so how big was the lottery yesterday? Over 900 million? Anybody doing any coveting there? Anybody? Oh, okay, just checking. It'll be over a billion next time. I just hope that whoever wins it ultimately likes GCA. That's all I do. <laughs> At that kind of money, I don't even care if you tithe or not. Just, just send an offering. <laughs> so... Of the Ten Commandments, Israel, collectively, they individually, are guilty across the board. There's, if they're going to stand up in front of God on the basis of the Ten Commandments, they're in desperate trouble. That's my point. And I think that's what's inspiring the question, which is the great one? Which one, if I got close, I'm probably okay? Jesus doesn't go to the Ten. Why? Because he's not Moses. He's the one that is greater than Moses. And he is not establishing the Mosaic law or the Mosaic standard. He is now establishing the new covenant and the new covenant standard. We've seen this time and time again throughout the book of Matthew. Jesus instead goes to Deuteronomy 6.5 of all places. And he says, here's the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the great commandment. Now, when he said that, he leveled the playing field as he is so fond of doing and made everybody guilty. Is there anybody in this room who is willing to say that they love God with all their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength constantly? Anybody? That's the point. This is the great and the foremost commandment. And they didn't ask him about a second, but he kept going. And he said, and the second is like it. And he went to Leviticus 19.18. And he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on those two commandments depend the whole of the law and the prophets. So he said the whole of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, the whole of your scripture depend on these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. The second is like it. You're going to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as James just rightly pointed out, the law of Moses is 613 rules. Nobody did it. But it's summarized in 10 And nobody did it. So Jesus narrowed it down to two. Anybody got it? Now, there's nobody in this room who's going to admit that they love their neighbor the way they love themselves. (laughs) If a neighbor calls and says, I have a need, you might fill that need. But love them, look at the standard, the way you love yourself? Do you split your paycheck with your neighbor? No. Why not? Well, because it's my paycheck. It's me. I, lo- I, me. I need my stuff. I worked hard. It's my money. I, well, then you don't love your neighbor the way you love yourself. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing by taking those two rules and saying 613 and the 10 themselves are all summed up in these two rules. Love God. Love your neighbor. But love God with all your heart and strength and love your neighbor like yourself. This is the standard of the new covenant and it accomplishes the very thing Jesus meant for it to accomplish, which is that it levels the playing field and demonstrates that nobody can live perfect performance to the degree that God would be obligated to save them or that God would accept them on the basis of their performance and their work. Because you can't do it. Now, That phrase from Jesus became the standard for Pauline teaching. You know that Paul argues for the new covenant over against the law of Moses. Paul argues that when Jesus died, that the law itself was nailed to the tree, taken out of the way. And so Paul argues the same thing Jesus did, that the whole of the law and even the whole of the Ten Commandments themselves are wrapped up in those two phrases. Turn to Romans 13 to start. Romans 13, we'll start around verse 8. Keep your finger there in Matthew. Verse 8 of Romans 13, Paul writes, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So he picked up right where Jesus left off. Because Jesus said the whole of the law and the prophets 
are summarized in love God, love your neighbor. Paul says the same thing and says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. But notice what he does next, and this is fascinating. He says, for this, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the ten. These are the big commandments. These are the establishing documents of Israel as a nation. He goes right for the ten commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Okay, those are all parts of the Ten Commandments, right? Mm -hmm. And he says, and if any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul himself said that that simple phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, encompasses the rest of the commandments. Now, Here's the distinction. Here's the difference. The commandments were given to Israel, but the Holy Spirit of God was not. And when you're dealing with people who do not have the governor of the Holy Spirit of God inside them, then you have to give them external rules. You have to govern their behavior from outside because you're not governing it from within. And so God gave them the Ten Commandments, and God gave them the 613 rules, and he gave them rules about how they would worship him, and how they would deal with their neighbor, and how they would be as a civil society, what the rules and the laws were going to be for national Israel. But when the new covenant comes into effect, the seal, the sign of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The same way that the sign and seal of the old covenant was keep Sabbath, the sign and seal of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Spirit. And if you have the governor of the power of God inside you, controlling and inspiring your behavior, then you don't need external rules written in stone. Instead, you need... Simply love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love your neighbor, if you love them with a Christ-like love, if you love them with a sacrificial love, then you're not going to commit adultery against your neighbor. You don't need to be told that. The same way that I don't need to tell Micah, don't cheat on your wife. He loves his wife enough not to cheat on his wife. He has that internal principle that would keep him from doing it. He doesn't need me external to him telling him what to do. The love that he has is going to keep him on the right path. You don't need to tell somebody who genuinely loves their neighbor, don't steal. I don't need to tell Todd, you know, don't steal anything from Lucas, okay? When you leave here, don't steal from Lucas, okay? Because I am trusting that Todd loves Lucas enough that he's not going to steal from him. Do you get the principle? Do you get the idea? If you have the Spirit of God indwelling you, then the principle of love God, love your neighbor is sufficient that you don't need the external commands. Which is why Paul could say it's all wrapped up in that. And notice the particular commands that he mentioned. He doesn't mention the first three here. No other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Don't take my name in vain. He doesn't mention those because those are the ones that are about your relationship with God. In context here, he's talking about relationship between brother and brother, neighbor and neighbor, which is why he would say, don't owe anything to anyone, to any other person, except to love one another. For he that loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he names 
particular commandments of the ten that have to do with your interrelationship with other people. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Those are all your relationships with other people. And then he says, if there's any other commandment, it's all summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Do you see the difference? The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is huge. The old covenant thunders down on you from Mount Sinai with endless rules and regulations. Do it, do it, do it, do it. And all the law can do for you ultimately is make you guilty and show you all the ways that you broke the law. The law can't bend. The law can't help you. The law can't succor you. The law can't say it's okay, I'll help you. Law has none of that. All it can do is thunder down from Sinai and say guilty. The new covenant says, okay, all those rules are wrapped up in love God and love your neighbor. And in those places where you fail, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Constantly interceding for us with the Father in those places where we fail. But on top of that, it not only removes the law of Sinai that holds us guilty, but Jesus became a curse for us and took the curse that the law demanded and took that out of the way and gave us the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us that becomes, like I said, a controller, a governor of our behavior. The contrast is enormous. And you should be very, very grateful that you're under the new covenant because the new covenant is based in grace and God's satisfaction in Christ's work the old covenant was based on legal performance, and it did nothing but curse people. You get the difference? Yes, sir. No one's ever explained it to, to me that way. And I was a Bible major at Lipscomb. <laughs> well, then it's about time you heard it. <laughs> this is not the only place that Paul writes this. Turn to Galatians 5. Galatians 5, we'll start around verse 13 or so. This is where Paul is dealing with the fact that in Galatia, a Gentile church, Paul has come there and taught them the new covenant. He has taught them the grace of God and the sufficiency of Christ. And then no sooner did he leave than Judaizers came in. The Judaizers were religious Jews who infiltrated the churches behind Paul and said, okay, everything Paul said to you, okay, fine, that's good, but you also have to be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul argues, of course, that since the law didn't save anybody among the Jews, then what would be the point of imposing that same law on Gentiles who weren't at Mount Sinai to begin with, who weren't part of that covenant in the first place, and so Paul goes so far as to say that if the Gentiles in Galatia would succumb to circumcision and attempt to keep the law, that they were, it's the only place you find the phrase, fallen from grace, and said that Christ then would be no benefit to them. So Paul drew these really clear lines. It's either all grace in Christ or it's the law, and you can't mix the two. 
You can't stand before God and say, I want to be judged on my performance, but wherever my performance fails, I'm going to plead Christ. You don't get that. It's either I am completely and utterly saved by the finished work of Christ, and that's my only plea, or it's judge me on the basis of my works, in which case you're going to be condemned, but nothing in between. One of the most sarcastic things that Paul writes in this letter, we find here in chapter 5, starting at verse 11, but I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? He's saying, I don't agree with what the Jews are teaching you about circumcision. If I did agree with it, they wouldn't be persecuting me. But I'm persecuted by them because I'm telling you not to be circumcised and keep the law. Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. In other words, he's saying, if you could be circumcised and keep the law and establish your own righteousness that way, then you don't need the cross. You don't need the sacrifice of Christ because you're capable. Just do it. You're fine. And then in verse 12, his very sarcastic comment about those that want to circumcise them, I would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. (laughs) If they're so convinced that cutting is going to make them righteous, cut away. Really sarcastic. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here's that theme again. Verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in one statement. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is wrapped up in that, he said. Forget the 613, forget the 10. It's wrapped up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you have the Spirit of God, again, controlling, driving, inspiring you, and your goal, because of Christ and for everything he did for you, your goal is to then treat others well and be gracious to them and be kind and generous with them, then you don't need an external law telling you what to do. You're naturally going to do the very things that the law couldn't get Israel to do. You see the difference? The law said, do it, and they couldn't, and they wouldn't, because they were hard-hearted, they were unconverted, they were rebellious. New covenant deals exclusively with people who are blood-bought, who are redeemed, who have had their stony heart taken out and given a heart of flesh, the Holy Spirit of God inside them. Those are the kinds of people you can say, now go love your brethren. You can't say that, by the way, to people who don't have the Spirit of God. I have often pointed out that Jesus' golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, that's a dangerous statement if you say that to people who don't have the Spirit of God. Because I might not want done to me what you want done to you. So don't do to me what you want done to you. That's scary. But if you're talking about a redeemed community, if you're talking about people whose primary goal is to love God and love their neighbor... Well, then you can give them a rule like do unto others as you would have them do unto you because you're going to treat them good because you want to be treated well. So Paul here again says, the whole of the law is fulfilled in this one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But, verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care 
lest you become consumed by one another. There's that that hardness of Paul, that little bit of sarcasm. Be careful how you treat each other. Don't start biting and devouring each other, which is the natural tendency of human beings. Rather, love each other. Okay, back to Matthew. They were testing him, and they said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. Notice, by the way, I'm just going to keep stressing it and stressing it. Notice what he did. He took them back to the word of God, back to the word of God, back to the word of God. And he showed them something in the word of God that they didn't get. They didn't understand it. They may have known the ten. They may have memorized the ten. They might even have thought they were living by the ten. They ask him the question, what's the great commandment? He doesn't go to the ten. He, the new lawgiver, goes to a completely different place and gives them a new command that is also directly out of the word of God. And they would never have known, nor would we have ever known, that that was the great commandment if he hadn't told us. And so we need to pay attention again. We need to listen to the teaching of Jesus. We need to pay attention to the word of God because that's where our instruction comes from. And that's the only place we're going to find genuine truth. Verse 40, on these two commandments depend the whole of the law and the prophets. Verse 41, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. We've seen this a few times. Like when they said, by what authority do you do these things? He said, I'll ask you a question, since you're asking me a question. And then he says, and if you can answer my question, I'll answer your question. Why is he doing this? Because he's smarter than them. And he's not afraid to be smart. Christianity is smart. Christianity is intelligent. And he says to them, um, the baptism of John was that from man or was that from God? And he knew full well there was no good answer for them. Because if they said, well, it's from man, then they knew that the crowd was going to turn on them because the crowd saw John as a prophet. But they also knew that if they said, it's from God, that Jesus would say, well, then why didn't you believe him? So there's no good answer. And when they said, they came back, they conferred, they come back to him and they say, we can't answer your question. He says, well, then neither am I going to answer your question. Which, by the way, is interesting. It's very much like the proverb that says, don't answer a fool after his folly. I think sometimes we start thinking that it's necessary that we give an answer to every online YouTube critic. <laughs> Or everybody who comments on any article. Well, what do you mean? I think I'm... Sometimes I look at stuff and I just think, there's no answer for you. There's nothing that's going to satisfy you. You're being a fool and I'm not going to respond to you after your folly. And Jesus did not feel that it was necessary to answer every foolish question by every foolish person. And when they said to him, we're going to ask you a question, he said, I'll ask you a question. And if you answer me, I'll answer you. And then he tied them up wisely, cleverly in a way that they could not answer. And he said, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. You don't have to answer every single question that every single critic brings up. 
Because all they're trying to do is tie you up and test you and get you to doubt the word of God. You don't have to succumb to that. Jesus didn't. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. This is another one of those, they have no good answer kind of questions. Because remember the setting. Jesus has just rode into Jerusalem on a donkey that was never ridden on. This happened just a couple days prior to this conversation. And Jesus has been demonstrated as being the Messiah, the Christ to come. And the people have identified him as the son of David, which makes him Messiah. Messiah has to be the son of David. So they've been crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And he knows that the Pharisees have heard this because the Pharisees said, you got to get the rabble to be quiet. you got to get them to stop this. They were afraid that the Roman authorities were going to come down on them because this was almost like riots in the street. All the people who were crying out to Jesus, so excited by the entrance of Jesus. And he said to them, if these people were quiet, the rocks would cry out. Because that particular moment was an epoch in history. The Messiah fulfilling scripture exactly as Daniel had predicted, and then riding in, exactly as Zechariah predicted, riding in on a donkey, and then being recognized as Messiah to come. This was so important. This was such a vital part of the, the plan and sovereign predestinary work of God that Jesus said, this has to happen. I must be recognized and celebrated. I have to be raised up and praised today, and if the people don't do it, the rocks will do it, because this has to happen. So now he hearkens back to that moment and asks them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they say he's the son of David. Well, there's no way to miss that. People have been crying Hosanna to the son of David for the last few days. So it's kind of a basic question. Son of David. And he said to them, then how does David... In the spirit, call him Lord. Okay, now, sociologically and in a family setting, especially in the Old Testament, the father is the head of the household. And the father would never call his son his Lord. The son would call the father his Lord. And he says, and yet David... And here he's quoting the Psalms, by the way, and he's going to go back one more time and quote uh, Psalm 110.1, which is quoted so frequently in the New Testament to demonstrate that Jesus from Nazareth is, in fact, the Christ. It's brought up time and time again. But he's quoting a Psalm written by David, and yet look at the language. <coughs> David, by the Spirit, called him Lord. So what does Jesus think of the Scripture again? Once he has already said, God spoke to you in what he wrote. Here he says that David, when he wrote, wrote by the Spirit. That the Spirit of God inspired David to write these words about his own son. And in writing about his son, the Messiah, called him Lord. And then he quotes Psalm 110, the first verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand meaning that the Messiah is lifted up to the very right hand of God, and then sit here until I make your enemies beneath your feet, until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Some of your translations, I think, will say, 
make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, so Jesus says, here's a quote from a psalm by David, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and David calls his son, his descendant, his Lord. Why would he call him Lord? He now asked the Pharisees. And they had no answer. Because if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare on that day to ask him any other questions. Because he'll wrap them up, he'll tie them up, he'll outsmart them. Now, of course, the answer is David called his son his Lord because he recognized that his son was going to be Messiah, the very son of God. And as a consequence, he was David's Lord. And then Jesus is being identified as the son of David. That's why Matthew starts with a genealogy that traces him all the way back to David. As a consequence, Jesus is saying, I am the very son of David. But if David called me Lord, what does that mean I am? Who does that identify me as being? I am God incarnate. I'm the very son of God. And you have to admit that if you answer my question. So they go, nobody say anything. Don't, guys, shh. Don't. Say nothing because the only proper answer theologically is, you're God. So, of course, he's going to say, well, then, why are you trying to kill me? Why do you reject me? And it is on that basis that chapter 23 starts. I'm just going to start on chapter 23 briefly to kind of whet your appetite. Chapter 23 is the fiercest, harshest chapter in all of the New Testament and the fiercest, harshest words you find in the New Testament anywhere come from the mouth of Jesus. Because Jesus is not only Savior and Messiah, he is judge. And he is a right and a proper judge. And so since they have denied who he is, denied his sonship, denied his lordship, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples saying, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the seat, in the chair, in the place of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Remember that he hasn't been to the cross yet. Remember that the new covenant has not been implemented yet. Remember that he's talking to a crowd of Jews who are under the law of Moses. Therefore, they are still obligated to keep the law of Moses. So he says, now the Pharisees have put themselves in the place of Moses. And everything that they say by the word of God, by Moses, do it, observe it, you should. But don't do according to their deeds because they say things, but they don't do them. They're hypocrites. The very living bodily definition of what it is to be a hypocrite. And they tie up heavy loads, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. This is the difference between the law and Christ. The law, as I kept saying, can only thunder down on you, condemn you, and hold you guilty. And so the Pharisees don't even with a finger lift that load off anybody. Jesus comes onto the planet and says, come to me, you that are weak and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My burden's light. 
He's going to help. He's going to give you rest for your soul. The one thing that the law and the Pharisees simply could not do. Non-stop, 24 hours a day, 365, all the law could do is hold you guilty. And Jesus says, I've come to lift that load, to carry that burden. They tie up heavy loads and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels on their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets. And they love the chief seats in the synagogue. And they love the respectful greeting in the marketplace. And being called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But don't be called Rabbi. For one is your teacher. You're all brothers. Notice that. He says, there's only one ultimate teacher it's the holy spirit of god that is teaching and guiding you and when you lift anybody up and you say that's the guy that's the chief human that's the guy through whom i'm going to get to god that's the teacher that's the well then you're putting a a person a human in the place of god and do not call anyone on earth your father or pope ill papa priests are called holy father And Jesus said, don't, don't do that. You have one father, your father in heaven. So don't be called rabbi, which of course the Pharisees loved because one is your teacher. You are all brethren and do not call anyone on earth your father for one is your father. He who is in heaven. Now he has referenced the Holy Spirit and the father and don't be called leaders for one is your leader and that is Christ. He just mentioned Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He just mentioned the Trinity and said, the Trinity is sufficient to take care of you and save you. Don't let any man stand in the place of any member of the Trinity. And the Pharisees wanted to do that because religious leaders always want to do that. Religious leaders want to use religion as a means to control other people in order to make themselves wealthy or in order to make themselves famous or in order to give themselves power. Human beings have always desired power over other human beings. That's why human beings have always been at war and have always had kings and then somebody will murder the king so they get to be king. And everybody seems to want to, oh, this is awful, I'm quoting a song, everybody does want to rule the world. Everybody wants to be the boss of everybody across the board. (laughs) and the simple reality is Jesus when he was on the planet said don't be like that you have a teacher you have a guide Mm -hmm. and you have a father and you have a leader father son and spirit and don't get lifted up in your religious pride because that's what the Pharisees were doing that's what the Pharisees were like verse 11 but the greatest among you Shall be your servant. How often have we seen this? If you want to be great in Christianity, then love your brother as you love yourself. If you want to be great in Christianity, serve other people. Religion, man made religion across the board, raises up men and then other men serve that man. Why are there multi millionaire? TV evangelists. 
because men make themselves the center of the religious universe. And then everybody serves the man. Why is there such a thing as a Pope mobile? <laughs> because it's a way of lifting up a man and all the other men serve him. There is one God, there is one Savior, there is one Holy Spirit, and they deserve your worship, but they're the only ones that deserve your worship. The rest are just human beings. If you want to be great in Christianity, you don't take the high chair, plant yourself in it, and say, I'm boss. You take the low seat, and you wait to be asked to be brought up. Christ will lift you up in a proper time. God will lift you up in a proper time, and he will use you for his own purposes and his own glory. But even when he does that, you don't get to go, hey, look at me. God's using me. I'm the spiritual one. I'm the righteous one. Watch me. I'm the special one. Jesus keeps saying, you're all one body. Some are hands. Some are feet. Some are the mouth. Some are... Some are the ears, some are listening, some are seeing, some are the eyes, but you're all part of one body and you all complement each other and you all work together like a great big tapestry. The greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. I think that's pointed at the Pharisees. If you exalt yourself, God will take you down. But whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Exalted how? Well, humble yourself in this lifetime. Humble yourself before God and Christ. And he will make you joint heir with Christ in everything God has prepared for Christ in eternity. That's a pretty good uplift right there. That's, especially when we're talking about little worms like us. Craggy little people like Jamie. I mean, how in the world should... I'm sorry, you were there. Blue shirt, I caught my eye, shiny object. I mean, how, how can we possibly explain that God is willing to allow people like us to become joint heir with his son, trophies of grace through all eternity, living in the constancy of God's blessings and overflowing joy? I just, I use the phrase all the time because I love it. No more sickness, no more death, and God's going to wipe away every tear. I, I can't begin to fathom what that's going to be like in this lifetime, if I am never raised up, in this lifetime, if I never become rich or important, in this lifetime, if I never gain a claim among men, but I belong to Christ, and God is willing to call me brother with Christ, you don't get more exalted than that. Eternity's coming. And the older I get, the more aware I am that eternity is right around the corner, just right there on the precipice of eternity. So what do I really want for the balance of my life? Do I want to pursue the things of this world, all these things that are going to burn? Or do I pursue the things of Christ, knowing that God is going to ultimately lift us up and put us in his place that Jesus prepared for us since before the foundation of the world? Or... Lake of fire. Okay, let me think for a moment. <laughs> I got to go with, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be. I got to go with that. And that is the goal. That is the purpose of life. So how do I accomplish that goal? Well, 
to the best of my ability, love God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, and love my neighbor as myself. That's the goal. And in that, I have satisfied the law and the prophets. Got it? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.